one thing I want to say real quick, and then we're going to jump in. In your bulletin, um, you saw uh, this half sheet. It has some questions for you. Uh, we did this during our formed series, and uh, I'm, I'm bringing it back. I got a lot of good feedback from you guys having these questions in your uh, bulletin just for uh, the sermon. Um, these questions are largely designed to be done in a group setting, like group discussion with one another, and, and that's just a really good excuse for me to tell you that this week our community groups start. So if you're in a community group, you should have been hearing from your leader if you haven't already started. And if you'd like to get into a community group, then please go tell the folks at the Connect table or find Evan, one of our pastors. He'll be up later. He's in the flowery shirt. You'll be able to see him. Uh, so find him and say, hey, I want to be in a group, and he's going to get you connected into a Group. Some of your groups might be using these questions um, in there. So hold on to that, or if you just want to use that for your own benefit, please do that. But I wanted to point that out to you. All right? Uh, John chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead, open that up to the Gospel of John. So that's your fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, and go to chapter 2. In just a few moments, we're going to be reading from John chapter 2. Uh, I remember when I was 24 years old, Um, I had already been in uh, ministry for about three years, uh, so I got a really young start. And when I was 24, I got promoted to be a college pastor, so the pastor of this college ministry, at a very, 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 very large church, okay? Uh, And so I remember when I was promoted to lead that ministry, I joined the pastoral leadership team of the church, Now, as a young 24-year-old, I remember seeing that group of people and thinking, oh, I want to be a part of them, right? Like, that's that's the room to be in. Now, this is a large church. We're talking hundreds of staff people, okay? So, I mean, there's like all these rungs and, you know, there's middle management in church, which is kind of crazy, and all the way up. And so, I really wanted to be a part of this group. Well, I, I... I was asked to be a part of this group now. And I remember the first meeting that I was invited to. I was so excited, right? Chest was high. I was was ready to go. And I thought I was like really important. And so I walk into this room and I'm early for the meeting, uh, but I'm the last one to arrive, okay? And there's one seat left at the table and it's the seat next to the senior pastor, whom I didn't really know. I've been here for a few years, but you know, it was so big. I didn't really know him as much. So I go, I sit down, we're ready to get started, and, you know, we hadn't started yet, and I feel a sneeze coming on. So I acted appropriately, okay? There was a Kleenex box in the middle of the table. I grabbed the Kleenex. I kind of, you know, I was like one of those sneezes. You're like, oh, I've got some time to prepare for this. So I grab the Kleenex. I actually stand up. I get away from the table. I sneeze into the Kleenex, throw the Kleenex away into the trash can, And the senior pastor looks at me, and he says, back of the room. And I remember going, wait, wait, what? And he's like, I cannot get sick. I can't afford that. Back of the room. And I was like, oh, okay. So I I had to sit in this meeting, not at the table, but in a chair in the back of the room for the entire meeting. So... I went from feeling excited, important, uh, welcomed, wanted, my voice mattered at the table, to 
Uh, we'd rather you not be in here, but you can just sit in the back so you don't miss anything. Or, or feeling just tolerated. And when we think about religion, like religions, I think sometimes this is how they're organized. Most of us feel this sense of, what do I need to do to just be tolerated by God or my creator? What do I need to do so that I can be in the room even though I'm pretty sure he doesn't want me in the room? He'd rather me just be in the back. I don't have a seat at the table. I'm not welcome. No one's excited. I'm not wanted, but I can be in here. And I think a lot of religions are organized this way. Why? Because I think we as humanity have something built into us that we know that God is unhappy with us if God's there. We look at the world around us, it's broken, it's corrupt, and if we're really honest, right, we have a front row seat to our own personal corruption, just the stuff inside of our own hearts and own minds, the selfish stuff and the the wrong motivations, whatever, we know it's all there, and so there's something in us that goes, yeah, if God really knows me, he's probably unhappy with me. And so what do I need to do just to be able to be tolerated inside the room? And I think the longing of the human soul is not that we would just be tolerated, but that we would be wanted. That that, that God would be excited to to be with us. It would be a good thing. Not just say, all right, you can come and have a seat in the back of the room. Uh, This morning, we're going to start a new sermon series called Stories of Belief, and we're going to look at seven different passages in the Gospel of John. These are seven different stories where John, the author of this gospel, which is this account of the writings and the teachings and the, uh, um, the ministry of Jesus, where John says, that Jesus gives a sign. He, he does something in particular. John calls it a sign. And in each of these stories, Jesus is showing us who he is, what he's really like, and what it means to actually relate with God. Like what we should believe when it comes to Jesus. And so in these seven stories, we're going to see the very thing that actually differentiates Jesus from all the other religions of the world. That say that, what do I need to do just so that God doesn't kill me? I think we're going to see that Jesus is different. So today, here's what we're going to see. I'm just going to give it to you right now. What we're going to see today is that Jesus isn't just a way to have your sins expunged and so you can have a seat in the back of the room. Jesus joyfully gives you a seat at the table and you are wanted. I want you to see this this morning as we read. We're going to do that in John chapter 2. This is the first story of Jesus in John that we are told is a sign of who Jesus is. So let me read this. John 2, verse 1 to 11. I love this story, and uh, there's a lot to explain here, and we'll get there, all right? But let me just read all of it. 1 through 11, it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Remember, Galilee is uh, is the area that Jesus is from. 
and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, that's not how Jesus said it, okay? That was a respectful way to refer to his mother. That's not a respectful way for us now to refer to your mother. But it wasn't back then, all right? So if that triggered you, you're like, no, 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 it's it's respectful, all right? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's great advice. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, Jesus had turned it into wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew what Jesus just did. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, less judgment, than the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. As many of you know, a couple weeks ago at Grace Hill, we lost one of our church members to a battle of cancer. And Evan and I had the privilege to be uh, at the funeral, but then come to a dinner afterwards. And at this dinner, we stood in this circle, and we had wine glasses, and they kept pouring a little bit of wine into our glasses. And we would share a story Uh, There was a musician in the group, a phenomenal musician, who would get on the piano and play, and we would sing a song. And we would do these things to remember and celebrate this person's life. And so every time we shared a story or sang a song or did one of these things, everyone would raise their glass, and, and we would toast, and we would take a drink. Now, most of the people in this particular group spoke Russian. So I had no idea what they were saying when we raised our glasses. Until someone told me the translation. He said, what, basically what we're saying in English is heavenly kingdom. And I was blown away by it. Because, listen, in the Bible, if, you know, we have lots of views in our head, maybe illustrations, um, images in our head of what heaven's going to be like. You know, so you know, maybe it's the cliche, you know, floating in clouds with little baby angels or, what, you know, whatever it is. We just have these images of what heaven's going to be like. Well, The Bible uses very specific imagery to describe heaven, the kingdom of God, both in the Old and the New Testament. And one of the most prolific images it uses is a feast with good wine served, where we're all around the table and we're celebrating all that God has done and we're celebrating his goodness and we're experiencing everlasting joy. That's one of the images. And so as we were at this funeral, but then later at this dinner, this was a biblical foreshadow of what the kingdom would be like as we celebrated this person 
and we remembered and we raised wine together in that very way. See, when we understand the imagery of the Bible, it really helps us to understand what Jesus is doing at this wedding. So in the Bible, I want, and you guys know I love this passage. I'm going to read it again. I read it all the time. It's going to happen again this morning. In the Bible, all right, when there is no wine, when the wine has run out, or there's no wine available, it is an image used of God's absence. It's an image used to say we are not in the kingdom. This is not what the kingdom is like. There's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing to be glad about. But when the wine is abundant, that is a symbol that God is here. And his kingdom is here. I'm going to show you. Isaiah chapter 24. If you go to your Bible, Isaiah chapter 24. I'm just going to read verses 4 to 11. Here in chapter 24, Isaiah is giving us a picture of God's judgment. He's giving us a picture of what it means to be outside of the kingdom of God. Look at what he says, starting in verse 4. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth language, languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. You see, the, the, you see the imagery that's being used here of being in the judgment of God, outside of his kingdom, right? There's nothing to be glad about, and the wine has run out. Go one chapter over to chapter 25. I think I read this like two weeks ago. Verses 6 to 9. Now we're getting a description of what the kingdom is like. When God is near to us, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the Bible, a lack of wine is a sign of the judgment of God, the absence of God, and an abundance of wine is a sign of his kingdom. And so when we understand the imagery of the Bible, this wedding at Cana takes on 
so much meaning for us. And it's really important that we understand what Jesus is doing here. If you go back to John 2, verse 3 to 5, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So Jesus is saying, Hey, hold on. This whole business of the wine running out and there needs to be more wine, yeah, that's kind of why I'm here. That's why I came from heaven to earth. But my hour to do that has not yet come. Yet, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that's going to be a sign of what I'm going to do for all of my people later. And so what Jesus is doing here at this wedding is he is showing us exactly his purpose for being here. It's a sign. It's a symbol of all of it. And so there's four really important details in this story that we need to pay attention to so we can understand what Jesus is up to. All right? Four details. Here's the first detail we need to pay attention to. The wine has run out. The bridegroom has failed. So this was a Jewish wedding. And Jewish weddings were known to last for several days. And it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to provide all of the wine. And yes, it was a lot of wine that needed to be provided. But the bridegroom failed to do his responsibility. And they ran out of wine. So this is a big problem culturally. It's embarrassing. There's shame attached to this. Big problem. The bridegroom has failed, and the wine has run out. And so we immediately conjure up images of Isaiah 24. We are mourning at the lack of wine. Something is wrong. We are not right with God. There is brokenness in the world. As I look inside myself and as I see others, I see corruption in the world. Of course, God is unhappy with us. Of course, there is judgment from God upon the earth. Of course, something is wrong. You know, I think a good example for us to be thinking of the, in this is earthly wine. Right, Psalm 104.15 says that, that wine gladdens the heart. Uh, I don't think I need to instruct any of us on the reality that if you drink a few glasses of wine, you're going to start to feel a little looser. It's a controversial topic to even be talking about in church. Why? Because wine, of course, is something we celebrate with and something we enjoy, but at the very same time, we also know its destructiveness. We know that there is such a thing as too much earthly wine. And that if you drink your fill and you continue to drink, it's no longer going to be something that gladdens your heart. It's going to do the opposite. And we know the way that it can be addictive. And we know the way that it can destroy families and destroy lives. We know that earthly wine eventually runs out of the joy that it provides. It's a worldly example. It fails. And so it reminds us that in our experience in this world, we experience the wine running out. 
metaphorically. We experience these things that we go to for joy, we go to for answers, we go to for for fulfillment, and it runs out. I mean, you could spend your whole life going after just more and more money in the bank account, and hey, just like earthly wine will gladden the heart a little bit, hey, that will gladden your heart some. It's enjoyable, but it doesn't answer the desires of the soul. Or we could go to relationships, or we could go to possessions, or we could go to, you know, higher and higher, higher status in my company, or whatever you just want to label it. Anything in this world that promises to gladden our heart, to fulfill our soul, we go fully after it, and then we realize there is too much of that, and it fails. It doesn't provide the joy that it promises to provide. And the reason is Isaiah 24. We have broken our relationship with God. There is judgment here. We are, we are distant from God because of our sin. We've broken the things that God has called us to. That's the very reason, and that's the very reason why most religions are organized really in the same way. God's unhappy. What do I need to do so that he just won't kill me? You know, what pillars do I need to follow? What pilgrimage do I need to take? What laws do I need to follow? What sacrifices do I need to make? What commandments? What shall I do and well shalt I not do in order for God to just tolerate me? Because we know the wine has run out. That is our experience in this world and nothing else seems to fulfill the soul. leads us to the second detail and the third detail we need to pay attention to in our passage. The second details we need to realize here is that Jesus is the true bridegroom. When Jesus' mother comes and asks him to do something about there being no wine, she is asking him to take the place of the bridegroom. He has failed to do what he needed to do. Now you need to step up and you need to do it, Jesus. Jesus is the true bridegroom. And the third detail we need to pay attention to is what Jesus is going to do now as the bridegroom in the story who's going to take over is he's going to provide wine to the wedding through changing the water used for purification into wine used for celebration. Now, I can't think of something that might sound more offensive to that culture, at least to that religious conviction right there. Jesus took the very thing used for the Jewish rites of purification, as the text says, and changes it to wine. These Jewish water purification rituals, um, you can read about some of them in the book of Leviticus and others. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can become unclean according to the law in the Old Testament. And every time you become unclean, there is a lot of things that are required of you. One of those is to wash yourselves in this water. Or when you go to a friend's house and you're there to have dinner, you need to wash your hands, you need to wash your feet. There's lots of rituals. And if you remember in the Gospels, Jesus' disciples were often criticized for not following these rituals. This reminds us, these rituals, of how they related to God 
in the Old Testament, according to the law. This idea that God is going to be in the temple, and he's going to be behind a curtain. And that curtain is going to be embroidered with cherubim, this kind of warrior angel that gives us images of Genesis chapter 3 and God basically saying, I'm going to guard the way of life so that you will never be able to find it. Images of God being in this place and there's so much that I have to do so that I can just draw near and be close to God. Sacrifices and laws and rituals and cleansings. It's all a reminder that God is far. It's all a reminder that I'm not worthy to be in his presence. I mean, imagine if I invited you over to my house for dinner tonight. And you were coming over, and I, you knocked on my door, and I w- welcomed you in, and I said, man, so glad you're here. Hey, before you step further into my house, would you please go downstairs? There's a shower there. I'd like for you to take a shower. And then you can come upstairs and sit at my table. What would you think? I mean, you'd probably, like, you'd, you'd check yourself. Like, oh, I mean, do I smell bad? What's wrong with me? There would be distance between us. I think he would be like, that's really weird. I don't know if I want to come back, you know? Because that, that gives you this feeling of there's something wrong with me, and it makes me feel like you'd rather me not be here. But you're putting up with it. You're tolerating it. And what I want you to see in the text is this, is that Jesus could have provided wine to that wedding in any way that he wanted to. He was God. That was not a hard task for him. He chose to do it with that water. It wasn't like Jesus was like, ah, what do I do, what do I do? Ah, that water. No, he could have just snapped his fingers and cases of wine would have shown up. He chose intentionally to use the water used for purification and to change it into wine that's used for celebration, because what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's nullifying the way that we normally like to relate with God. No longer through guilt, no longer through shame, no longer through what do I need to do to purify myself, to be in your presence, and it's now wine. You're welcome to the table. Let's celebrate. I want you in the room. I mean, so I'm thinking of images of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. If you know the story, you have a father, the son, steals his inheritance, goes off, just spends it like crazy, looking for joy in the world. He eventually realizes the wine runs out. The world isn't fulfilling his soul the way that he thought. Now he's poor, he's in a famine. And he says to himself, man, it'd be so much better back at my father's house, even if I was just a servant, no longer welcome at the table, even if I could just be in the back of the room, I'm good. And so he goes back to his father and he's rehearsing this speech all the way home. God, I'm so, father, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I don't even need to be your son anymore. I'll just be your servant. And the father sees the son approaching, runs out to him. The son starts the speech. He says, enough with that nonsense. You have a seat at my table. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fattened calf. We're celebrating because that's how you relate with God if you are in Christ. This is what Jesus is trying to show at the wedding at Cana. This is the good news of Jesus. 
Jesus, when his hour comes, is going to do something that will not only just wipe your sins away so you can be tolerated. Jesus is going to do something that gets you a seat at the table. And nothing you have ever done and nothing that you will ever do will revoke that invitation. Because when the, G- when the hour of Jesus comes, Jesus is going to shed his blood on the cross to pay for your sins. And he's gonna rise from the grave to ensure that death does not have the last word in your life, securing your spot at the table where you will raise a glass with Christ and the rest of the kingdom for all of eternity. And nothing will revoke that invitation. It's no longer, what do I need to do so that God will tolerate me? It's now, look what Jesus has done so I can be a child of God and have a seat at the table. I'll never forget when I got my first speeding ticket as a teenager. And I had to go home and tell my parents that I got a speeding ticket. I still remember my mom's look on her face. She's right there. I'm not going to look at her. And I remember thinking to myself, what do I need to do so they don't kill me? Now, they weren't going to kill me, but, you know, you're a teenager. You're in that situation. That's what you feel. All right? What do I need to do to make sure she doesn't, he doesn't kill me? I just got my first speeding ticket. Y'all were pretty mad. I remember that night. (laughs) I think so many of us approach God in that same way. What do I need to do to make sure God doesn't kill me? What do I need to do to make sure that God isn't mad at me? What do I need to do to make sure that I can show up here at this church service and not feel guilt and shame just weighing down on me? What do I need to do so that I can actually pray to God and not feel like he's annoyed at me for wanting something from him? What do I need to do to have a relationship with God that I feel like I deserve? I think so many of us relate with God in that way. But Jesus is giving us the sign here in John chapter 2 that that is not how we relate to God and that is not how God relates to us. Jesus has done something so that we now have a seat at the table and we'll spend eternity celebrating. And this is exactly why Jesus gave the church instructions when we gather to break bread and drink wine. Before Jesus went to the cross, he tells his disciples, when you gather as the church, I want you to break bread and I want you to drink wine together. And here's exactly why. Let me me read it for you. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 26. It says, now as they were eating, that's Jesus and his disciples the Last Supper, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, I want you, when you gather, to grab that glass and take a sip of that wine because what it's going to remind you of, it's gonna remind you of the blood that I shed so that you could have a seat at the table. 
It's going to remind you that I have drawn near to you and I have done everything that needs to be done so that you will be wanted in this room and celebrated in this room. And you need to be reminded of that often. Every time we gather... Why? Because it's so easy for us to forget and revert back to the old religious ways of what do I need to do for God just to tolerate me? And Jesus is shouting from the wedding at Cana, that's not how it works. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. That's not why I came here and went to the cross. I want to confess to you that when we come and we gather and we drink of the wine and we eat of the bread and we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, one of the things that Jesus desires for his church is that we would be a taste of that kingdom. That when we gather together, that we would relate with one another in the same way that God is related with us in and through Jesus. That this would be a place where people are welcome even in their brokenness. This would be a place where people are wanted. This would be a place where you have a seat at the table. This would be a place not where we rank each other based off of things like holiness or church attendance or whatever other ways that we figure out, where when we drink the wine and we break the bread, we realize that all of us are the same in Christ Jesus. And I have to confess to you that the church is terrible at that. I'm sure many of us have had experiences in church, maybe even at this church, where you felt, man, I'm not welcome there. People make assumptions about me there. I've got stuff going on in my life that they wouldn't be able to handle, and I have no idea where else to go. And so there I feel tolerated, not wanted. And if that's been your experience, I want you to know I'm sorry. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, Maybe that's your perception of the church. Man, I've always been told that's a place of judgment. Statistics say the number one reason why non-Christians don't go to church is because they see it as a place of judgment. And John chapter 2 is a sign to us that that's not what Jesus is about. That's the common denominator amongst all religions. But Jesus is different. And so I want to invite you to explore, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just who Jesus is. Like, stick with us over the next seven weeks as we go through this series with John at these seven signs of who Jesus is and what he's about. You got no obligation to us at all. Just come, explore what the Bible has to say, get to know some people here, and see what it actually means to put your trust in Jesus and to follow Jesus and see Jesus as someone who is good. The fourth detail that I wanted you to see in our text this morning as we end is that Jesus saved the best wine for last. And he provided a lot of it. I did the math. If, okay, if there's six vats of 30 gallons filled to the brim, okay, uh, that's 900 bottles of wine. That's a lot of wine. <laughs> All right, so Jesus showed up with a truckload of wine, okay? And everyone's like, whoa, who invited that guy, right? Jesus saved the best wine for last, and he provided all of it. And I think all that we're supposed to see from that is this, is the wine 
is never gonna run out in the kingdom of God. It's never gonna run out. It is the thing that will satisfy and fulfill your soul as an image bearer of God. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to come and drink of the wine, we have juice, and break the bread together. And I want us to remember what Christ has done for us. And I want us to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Just like we would celebrate at a wedding. And here's exactly what we're going to be celebrating. If you go back to Matthew chapter 26, I left one verse out in verse 29. As Jesus is giving the Lord's Supper, he's telling his disciples, every time you gather, I want you to drink this wine. I want you to break this bread. I want you to remember what I have done for you in and through the cross. I want you to remember this every single time. But verse 29, look what he says. I want you to imagine him. He raises a glass. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit, of the vine, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we come forward this morning and we take the wine and we take the bread, what we're going to be celebrating is what Christ has done for us so that we can be welcomed, wanted in his kingdom, but also the truth that we will be in his kingdom for all of eternity and we'll raise a glass with the king himself seated at his table, wanted, not just tolerated. And so I'm gonna pray for us and the band's gonna start playing and, and what I'd like for you to do is just come up. When, when I'm done praying, come straight up. Don't, don't need to sit around Grab the juice, grab the bread, and as you come up, what I want you to imagine is you being like the prodigal son headed home. And as you grab the juice and as you grab the bread, I want you to be reminded that Jesus says, you have a spot at my table because of what I have done for you. Trust in that. You can go back to your seat and uh, we're going to sing a song called Oh Praise the Name. Just such a great song that rehearses these truths of what Christ has done for us. And then when you're ready, as your heart celebrates, as you sing, as you think about the good things that Christ has done for you, drink of the cup, take the bread, whenever you want, and be reminded of what Jesus has done and be reminded that you will be with him in his kingdom at his table for all of eternity where the wine will never run out. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to celebrate you this morning. And God, I pray for those in this room who have such a hard time wrapping their head and their heart around the truth of what we just spoke, what we just learned about in John chapter 2. It doesn't seem right sometimes, God, that you would do that for us. that you would just give of yourself and shed your blood and invite us into your kingdom no matter what we've done or the brokenness that's in our life. God, we bring a lot of baggage. And so God, I just pray that as we sing, as we take of the juice and of the bread, as we encourage each other today, even as we're together over lunch, God, I pray that you would encourage specific people in this room who are questioning your goodness and your love. And very specifically, God, would you minister to them and would you give them confidence 
that they are wanted in your kingdom and they are welcome in your kingdom because of what Christ has done for us. God, help our trust to be in Christ alone and that's it. God, I just pray for the strength in this church that we would love one another in that very same way. That in the way that we care for each other and welcome each other in and ask questions and learn each other's stories before we make assumptions and as we invite people to the tables in our homes and as we spend time together, that this would be a taste of what that kingdom will be like when the wine doesn't run out. Help us to do that, God. We need your help. It's, we often fail at that. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would minister to people as we celebrate the good news of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name.